Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, this is episode, we're, we're somewhere in the 90s now, which is crazy, but uh, so we're not a very new podcast anymore. But anyway, for those of you out there just listening for the first time, uh, basically what this podcast is, is I invite an author on to uh, discuss a book of theirs that's been newly published or recently published, uh, something we think you guys would like to hear a discussion about, and then hopefully at the end of the podcast, uh, you go ahead and uh, give the book a purchase yourself and give it a read. So, uh, yeah, if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show, and also by sharing with your friends, as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And my guest today, uh, we have a uh, return guest again, um, and I somehow shockingly didn't scare him off the first time. But anyway, uh, my guest today is uh, Dr. Jonathan W. White, and uh, Dr. White is Professor of American Studies at Christopher Newport University. Uh, he is a distinguished lecturer for the Organization of American Historians, serves on the boards of directors of the Abraham Lincoln Institute and the Abraham Lincoln Association, and is vice chair of the Lincoln Forum and editor of the Lincoln Forum Bulletin. Uh, he is the author or editor of 13 books and more than 100 articles, essays, and reviews about the Civil War, including Emancipation, the Union Army, and the Re-Election of Abraham Lincoln, Midnight in America, Darkness, Sleep, and Dreams During the Civil War, and a house built by slaves, African-American visitors to the Lincoln White House, for which he was a previous guest on this podcast. And uh, lastly, he is the author, or excuse me, uh, the editor uh, of the volume to address you as my friend, African-Americans' Letters to Abraham Lincoln, uh, which was published last October by the University of North Carolina Press, and is the book we'll be discussing today. So, uh, Dr. White, again, uh, thank you so much for <laughs> for coming back on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Oh, no problem, no problem. It's my pleasure. Um, yeah, so uh, when we were discussing your, your newer book, because uh, we actually did the newer book first, because I didn't know about the... Yeah. Uh, this one until I, I had was um, I found the newer one. Um, they sort of started out the the uh, genesis of the books. Two books was sort of the same, or or um, or a house built by slaves sort of came out of uh, the research done for this book. Yeah. Um, so uh, why don't you tell everybody um, what made you want to write this book? What was the genesis of it? And um, you know, what was the research like for this book? Sure. So I started collecting letters from African-Americans to Abraham Lincoln around 2014. I'm not sure why I started or how I started. I think I just stumbled up upon a few letters and thought, wow, these are really interesting and started collecting them. And I had the idea to do a book that was going to consist of correspondence and conversations between Lincoln and African-Americans and to really bring these new voices out that have largely been lost to history. And I got to the point probably around 2016 or 17 where I realized I had too much for one book. It was just getting too large and unwieldy. So I decided to break it into two. And so I published the correspondence as to address you as my friend. And then I wrote a narrative history about black visitors to the White House. And that one is a house built by slaves. And there's a little bit of overlap between the books because some of the correspondents actually brought their letters to the White House and handed them to Lincoln. But then there's a lot of different material and a lot of different actors in the two books as well. And the thing I love about 
this book is that it brings voices out that are usually lost, that we usually don't hear. Oftentimes, when you look for black voices in the 19th century, because literacy rates were so low, the way you get them is someone overheard a conversation, usually a white person overheard a conversation, and then wrote it down, wrote down what they heard or think they heard. And you often don't get those voices on their own. And so in in this book, you have letters that were usually written by the black correspondents themselves, although there are some cases where lawyers or teachers wrote for the correspondents. But often it's them writing for themselves. And so you get a sense of how they thought and how they spoke and how they wrote based on their spelling errors, if they're spelling words phonetically, Mm -hmm. or how they use grammar and punctuation and so forth, or how they don't use those things. In terms of the research, it was very, very hard and tedious. Um, (laughs) Some of the letters I just came across going through case files at the National Archives, pardon case files, or military commission or court martial case files, But then I also, I really dug deep into an online archive that's done by the Papers of Abraham Lincoln. And the Papers of Abraham Lincoln is a project run out of the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum in Springfield, Illinois. They are trying to find every document that Lincoln either sent or received or ever held and to scan them and make them available online. Eventually, they are going to add transcriptions, but... To date, they have very few transcribed, and none of these documents are keyword searchable for transcriptions online. Mm. But once I started collecting letters and finding letters from black correspondents, I went on to their website, and I, I began to look into record groups that I thought, you know, maybe black people would have written to Lincoln, and they might wind up in a specific record group at the National Archives. And I spent dozens and dozens if not hundreds of hours just combing through scans of letters looking for black correspondence and i ended up finding about 125 that made it into the book yeah most of those had never been published before right right only about 14 have appeared in print before yeah so um we talked about this with uh your i keep wanting to say your earlier book but it's your later book um the uh, how the act of um, these uh, black citizens going to visit Lincoln at the White House and uh, meet with Lincoln or try to meet with Lincoln was an act of uh, political engagement. And mm-hmm. the same thing is true uh, with this book, with the you know the, the uh, with the writing of letters to Abraham Lincoln. That is also um, you know an, an act of political engagement for people. Uh, for people who, uh, for the most part, um, didn't have uh, very many opportunities to uh, do any sort of political engagement. Right. For them, this is the first time that they see a president in the White House who they believe has their interests at heart. And so they claim the opportunity to write to him. And I I see that as a a claiming of the First Amendment right of the people to petition the government for a a redress of grievances. And so they write to Lincoln, if there's a problem in their lives, they they try to exhaust other means to resolve their issue. But if, if they can't get it done, they look to Lincoln to try to solve their problem. And so 
they write to him asking for presidential pardon if they've been convicted of a federal crime or a crime in the District of Columbia. They write to him once black men are serving in the army. When black men are not paid the same amount, they write to him calling for equal pay or calling for protection from Confederate atrocities. They write to Lincoln about needing food and money and sustenance. If their husbands are away serving in the army and the husbands aren't getting paid, the wives and family members back home write to Lincoln saying, we're starving. We need support. We need our we need the army to pay our husband and we need we need that pay. They they even write to Lincoln about some really funny things. I mean, there one guy from the sort of the corner of Pennsylvania near Delaware owned some land and he was having some land disputes with the government, with the state government or local government. And he wrote to Lincoln and essentially said, I need a lawyer. Can you help me out here? And at that case, at that point, Lincoln was no longer practicing law in 1863. He had given that up to become president. But here's a guy who says, you know, I've got an issue and I'm going to see if if Abraham Lincoln can help me out. And in all of these cases, I think you have these people writing to Lincoln because they believe he cares about them and he's looking out for them. Some of the letters are overtly political. So in a number of them, they ask Lincoln to support black suffrage and they're they're seeking a greater involvement in the body politic as well. Yeah. Now, Lincoln, um, how many of these letters did he actually see and read? Probably... Um, mostly he didn't see or he didn't see most of these letters just because um, his secretaries uh, hey and Nicolay um, you know obviously were trying to keep the <laughs> the amount yeah. of uh, paperwork on his desk to you know the absolute uh, uh, right. minimum amount just because of everything I mean obviously you're trying to you know conduct a um, you know, uh, a civil war uh, for the White House as the commander in chief and all, you know, everything going on with that. So um, obviously anything that they can, they think that uh, doesn't need to, you know, that he doesn't need to see or anything that they can take care of um, at a uh, lower level of the federal government that, that, you know, they can just, you know, uh, push to the, the secretary of war or somebody else. Um, they're not even going to bother Lincoln with those. Yeah, so it's estimated that Lincoln received between 200 and 300 letters a day. I mean, it kind of sounds like my email inbox, but I think it was <laughs> probably even more massive than that. And the secretaries worked under the rule of refer as little as possible to the president. Right. So what would usually happen is a letter would come in and one of his secretaries would read it. John Hay, John Nicolay, later there were other secretaries who worked for him. And they would look at the letter and they would figure out, okay, who in the federal bureaucracy can deal with this letter? And so they would then send it out, as you said, to the Secretary of War, Secretary of the Treasury, or a general or someone somewhere. And usually, or oftentimes, that person would resolve the issue. And But on occasion, these letters will come back to Lincoln. And so, for example, the pardon letters. Mm. Let's say you get convicted of a federal crime. Well, you, you want to get pardoned. So you write to the president saying, hey, you have the presidential power of clemency. Will you, will you pardon me of this crime? Now, those letters come in. 
and then they get sent to the pardon or the pardon office and the pardon attorney and the pardon attorney might have a clerk who would look at it or the pardon attorney would look at it and decide whether or not this was a meritorious request and let's say it was well whether or not it was a meritorious request it would go from the pardon clerk or the pardon attorney up to the attorney general and if the attorney general thought it that the person deserved clemency then the attorney general would pass it on to lincoln and Lincoln would make the final decision. If the attorney general did not think that the convict deserved pardon, it would just go back into the files at the pardon office and Lincoln would never see it. And so we can have a sense of the ones Lincoln saw, at least as relates to pardon, because if he pardoned the person, he probably saw it. Mm -hmm. And in fact, on some of those letters, and this is a really incredible thing to find, on some of those letters, Lincoln would turn the letter around and on the back of it write pardon A. Lincoln and then the date. So those are some of the most special ones because you know that Lincoln held it in his hand and he acted, even though he never wrote back to those particular correspondents, he acted in a way that got them out of jail. Now, I mentioned before record groups at the National Archives. Most of the letters from African-Americans are just spread out throughout the National Archives because each federal agency or department has its own record group. And so as the private secretaries sent them out to different people, they then wound up in those people's records and they are in a different record group at the National Archives. And so I had to hunt through just dozens of different places looking for these letters. And it was mm -hmm. often searching for a needle in a haystack. But there's one other source of letters that I think were really meaningful to Lincoln, and those are in his private papers at the Library of Congress. There were a lot of letters that Lincoln kept, and I don't know the exact number, but it's in the thousands. And when Lincoln died, these, these are letters that didn't get sent out to the federal bureaucracy that, that he kept with him at the White House. And when he died, they went into the possession of his son, Robert, and eventually Robert donated them to the Library of Congress. And for the most part, I think these are letters that Lincoln thought were really meaningful or very important that he wanted to keep. And buried within that correspondence are at least 21 letters from African-Americans. And often these are slaves writing to Lincoln, thanking him for emancipation, showing him how they're learning to read and write, telling him that they dream about him and that, you know, just how meaningful it is that God has put him in place where he is as president. And so those are also are ones that I think are really special and that we could talk about some of them in more detail because Lincoln almost certainly held those in his hands and 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 kept them. There are some where Lincoln personally responded, but those are are very few. But it's not like it was racism that kept Lincoln from writing back to mm -hmm. the black correspondents. It was busy. All. Lincoln didn't write back <laughs> most white correspondents. Yeah, I mean, either. he's just busy. You know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he had uh, <laughs> he had a job to do. Um, yeah, but actually, that was. A, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, those letters um, are uh, my favorite letters in the book because they're um, they're not asking for anything. <laughs> you know, it's like most of the letters. It's people, you know, like, hey, I need a pardon, uh, you know, hey, you know, I need my, you know, I need my, my back pay. Hey, uh, I need to be discharged for whatever reason. Hey, you know, give us money for this uh, Christian ministry or let us do this or, you know, hey, 
I need my cotton that was uh, confiscated, reimbursed, whatever. But then, like, you know, then there's just other people who are just like, hey, how's it going? Um, You know, thanks a lot. (laughs) Really appreciate it, you know. Uh, I just wanted to, you know, drop you a line and, you know, tell me how much, you know, um, you know, blah, 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 blah. Those sort of lines. Those are sort of, like, the the most touching to me because they're just, like, because they're just, imagine, you know, I can imagine just, like, a newly freedman or, uh, you know, a contraband or something like that. So like, I'm going to write the president of the United States today and just, <laughs> just, <Yeah. laughs> and, uh, and just tell him, you know, uh, about my story or, uh, you know, just send him thanks or whatever. Like those are, uh, those are like the most touching, uh, to me for, uh, yeah. obviously for sure. Yeah. But. And I think they were for him as well. It's nice <laughs> when you get a, a thank you note and not a request for something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but anyway, so uh, we'll get to some uh, specific letters in a minute. But uh, basically, the the book is broken down in uh, sort of thematically into these like three main categories: where uh, Lincoln is chief executive, Lincoln is commander in chief, and Lincoln as chief uh, citizen. Uh, I mean, though it's broken down that way, uh, what made you want to break it down that way? And um, but is there still a common thread between uh, these categories? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. With a book like this that was published by a university press, they send it out for peer review. And so anonymous scholars read it and tell you what they think you did right Mm -hmm. and what you change. And two or three of the readers suggested that I reorganize the the structure of the book. And I, I toyed with a lot of different ways of doing that. I thought about trying to do chronological so you get a sense of change over time, but then I thought that the main themes will get lost. And I tried thinking about, at one point I organized them according to who the correspondents were. So I had all the Christian ministers and the chaplains together and all the soldiers together and all the soldiers' families together. And I realized, again, the themes got lost. And so I ultimately decided to organize it around Lincoln and who he was and what people would be asking of him. And so I I looked at, you know, how do we think about the president and the president's roles? And I found uh, actually it was in a high school history textbook where they described you know, there are the different roles of the president. There's chief executive where he does certain things in terms of executing the law. There's commander in chief mm. where he is. Lincoln is clearly in charge of waging a war uh, at during his presidency. And then they had a, a concept of chief citizen that he's kind of the head of the, the nation. And there are certain functions that go into that. And it, you might say that's part of our unwritten constitution, like the mm. Those aren't written out in the Constitution in terms of duties. In fact, the Constitution has very little to say about the president's duties other than he executes the law and he's commander in chief. Um, And so I I threw a number of other topics into there. And so my hope is that as readers read the book, they can either focus on specific chapters. I know some professors assign the book to their classes and they don't have the students read every chapter. They pick the ones that kind of fit their themes in the chapters. And so it tells us something about what the president did and and what he was responsible for in those times. But then the thematic chapters also tell us something about the black experience during the Civil War. And so you, you see what was the black military experience like from enlisting to time in service to discharge or Mm -hmm. 
what was it like for civilians who were struggling in a really difficult, you know, high inflation and and uh, shortages of cash and you know difficulty for many of them to find jobs? Like, what was it like for them to to live through that? And so my hope is that the structure allows readers to get a sense of that. Yeah. Uh, but before we get to like the the structured paragraphs, the, the introduction, uh, you start with the with the Billy the Barber letter, um, mm-hmm. William de Florville. So, um, and this was actually, I mean, I think that was definitely like the best place to start because that's probably the most uh, touching letter in yeah. um, in the entire collection. So, uh, so yeah, who was Billy Billy the Barber and uh, uh, William de Florville, and what's his what's his connection to Abraham Lincoln? Yeah, so William de Fleurville was a Haitian immigrant, and he was the story that survives from the 1880s is that he was passing through New Salem, Illinois, which was this really small village where Lincoln lived in 1831, and he was on his way to Springfield, and he needed a place to stay, and he met Lincoln basically walking through the woods, and Lincoln invited him to stay at his place, and they they started a friendship in 1831, and six years later, Lincoln moves to Springfield, and he gets to know Fleurville really well. Lincoln represents him in legal cases. Lincoln does some of his tax work for him. Fleurville cuts Lincoln's hair, and they develop a friendship. And in fact, later in the 19th century, someone said that Lincoln really had two genuine friends who knew him better than anyone, his law partner and Billy the Barber. And in 1863, in December of 1863, Fleurville and Lincoln haven't seen each other for a couple years because Lincoln has gone on to Washington. But Fleurville sends him this really touching letter informing him what's going on back in Springfield. He says, you know, your dog's doing fine, your dog Fido. He he sends consolation to Lincoln because Lincoln had lost a son in 1862. Willie Lincoln had died. And so he, he talks about how great of a boy Willie was and how sad he was to hear that Willie died. He thanked Lincoln for emancipation, and, and he said that he hoped Lincoln would be reelected in 1864. And so it's this really meaningful letter from a close friend a close friend back in Springfield. And again, like this is one of the letters that Lincoln kept in his personal mm-hmm. papers at the Library of Congress. And I opened up with the book with the book with this because I called the book to address you as my friend. And that's a quote from one of the black correspondents to Lincoln who didn't know Lincoln. Mm-hmm. And it captures that I think black people really felt like they knew Lincoln and they could address him as a friend. They could reach out to him as if he was someone they knew. And I wanted to open the book with a letter from an actual friend, someone who knew Lincoln and um, wanted to connect with him. And I'll just – this isn't in the book, but I'll just kind of throw this out as something for free for <laughs> listeners. Um, I mentioned Lincoln's dog, Fido. You know, Lincoln's dog had this really uh, tragic end where after the Civil War, the dog was in Springfield and a guy was laying on a park bench drunk and stabbed and killed poor Fido. So, I mean, the oh, Lincoln – yeah, that's right. I – tragedy everywhere even down to the the house mutt yeah that's do you know do you have any idea if like uh the popularity of the name fido came from lincoln's dog or was that like just like a super popular dog name in like the mid 19th century or do we have any question i would guess that it was a common dog name but i i honestly don't know there are photographs that survive of 
Fido. He, I think he's the earliest presidential dog that was photographed. Yeah. Um, do, oh, also, do we know, um, do we know if Lincoln wrote, uh, Billy the Barber back, uh, from that letter? Do, is there any, uh, anything that survives, um, you know, return, a return yeah, letter from Lincoln? Question. There's nothing that survives. It, it's possible. I don't think Fleurville has any paper collection that survives. If, if it did survive, we would know of the letter, but yeah, I don't, we, we just don't know. Yeah. Okay. All right, um, so let's get to uh, uh, some of the chapters itself, some of the letters sure. itself. Uh, but uh, before specific letters, um, the second chapter is on the issue of colonization, and mm-hmm. uh, this is pr- probably the most contentious debate uh, left on Lincoln's legacy today yeah. is his uh, views on colonization uh, his actions on colonization, um, and uh, the specific meeting with uh, that was intended uh, for, um, you know, with the stenographer that was intended to <laughs> to be printed in, you know, in uh, papers around the country, where Lincoln, uh, not his best day, uh, but where he's just sort of, I'd say browbeating is the right word, but... Uh, very patronizing in um, in how he discussed the issue with these black leaders, and in yeah. a way that's um, sort of unique in how, um, from what we know, uh, from how Lincoln interacted with with black people on a regular basis. So uh, why don't you uh, talk about the the uh, colonization issue and uh, the, <laughs> the um, uh, the outcry, uh, uh, or the uh, from uh, the letters he received from uh, black people uh, opposing the colonization plan, and also uh, surprisingly, a number of people who uh, uh, black people who uh, supported the idea and you know offered their services um, to you know help uh, make uh, colonization come about. Yeah, so as you mentioned, August 14th, 1862, Lincoln actually has two meetings with African Americans that day. In the morning, he met with a man who had been born free in Norfolk, Virginia, who went on to become a president of Liberia and during the Civil War was back in the United States trying to gin up support for colonization in uh, to Liberia. And colonization is essentially voluntary emigration of of freed people out of the United States to other parts of the world. And Lincoln supported this as a way of trying to basically say to white Northerners, you don't have to be worried about emancipation if and when it comes. I'll try to get freed people to leave the country so that they don't, you know, depress wages and compete for, for jobs in the North. And later that day, Lincoln invited five black leaders from Washington, D.C. to come to the White House. And as you said, he very condescendingly tells them that they are the cause of the war, that black Mm -hmm. people are the cause of the war. And if they weren't here, white men wouldn't be cutting each other's throats. And so they should go to Panama. And there's great coal mines there that they can work in. And they'll never be treated as equals here, but he'll do everything he can to make sure they're treated as equals in Panama. And, you know, this Lincoln wanted this meeting to be 
broadcast to the North because he he was preparing the North for emancipation. And again, he wanted white Northerners not to oppose emancipation. So this is kind of a sop to them. But black leaders are outraged by this. Frederick Douglass publishes an op-ed in his newspaper where he just criticizes Lincoln to no end and for how condescending he was and saying that Lincoln doesn't realize the damage that he's doing to black Americans with this sort of this sort of language. And in fact, there was violence against black Americans in northern cities after this meeting. And some of the link letters to Lincoln that I include in the book were public letters. There are five mm. Out of the 125 letters, five of the letters were public, meaning that they were published in the newspapers and addressed to Lincoln. Open letters, basically. Open letters, yeah. yeah. And three of those, I think it's three, have to do with colonization. And when you read these letters, you just see the anger and the hurt that these black leaders feel towards Lincoln. From their perspective, they do not want to leave the country. They have they and their families have been in the United States for generations. They have helped build the United States. They don't want to go somewhere else. They want equality here. And one of the most remarkable things is that these letters are very patriotic. They mm -hmm. talk about how black men served in the American Revolution and fought for independence, how black men voted in earlier periods in American history, how they served during the War of 1812 and helped fight to secure American independence from Britain. They they have all they they use biblical allusions and allusions to antiquity. I mean, these are very learned letters, and they are making the case that colonization is a bad policy, and that rather than tell people to leave the country, the country should change and live up to its founding ideals and give people equality here. Now, what's interesting, though, is at the same time that there's this sort of public outcry among African-Americans, a number of private individuals and a few black leaders write to Lincoln and even come to the White House and meet with Lincoln supporting colonization and talking about how they want money to go. Congress allocated $600,000 for colonization purposes. And so they come to the White House and meet with Lincoln, and Lincoln actually sends some of them to different parts of the world with the federal government paying for it so that they can kind of scout it out. Can mm -hmm. Will colonization work? And I think that those letters and those meetings actually gave Lincoln kind of a false sense that there was a widespread support among black Americans for colonization. Most black people did not support colonization, but there were some vocal ones who did. And I think Lincoln may have believed they were a larger percentage of the population than they actually were. This was a really contentious issue in 1862 and 63. Mm -hmm. And as you pointed out, it is still one of the things that critics of Lincoln really point to, to uh, point out his racial flaws on um, or his flaws in terms of how he dealt with matters of race. Yeah, I think uh, you're right about the sort of um, uh, how these letters sort of misled him to believing that this was more popular than other. I think it's sort of like uh, uh, like today it probably be equated to like you know sort of like the Twitter bubble or something like that, mm -hmm. where you know you keep getting bombarded by uh, people who um, you know are probably not in the mainstream of uh, American. Uh, political tradition, but you just see so many of them, you just think that, okay, well, this is obviously popular or, um, right. you know, so 
we're going to go ahead and do this. And, um, you know, it doesn't turn out that way. But, um, yeah, but there was, uh, especially after the, um, the uh, passage of the, uh, the Fugitive Slave Act, you know, with, you know, the Compromise of 1850, mm. um, that, you know, uh, not an insignificant number of uh, black people were like, well, you know, <laughs> we probably really should leave. I mean, at this point, if they can just come and uh, sort of just kidnap us anywhere we are, if all of it, all of it takes is, uh, you know, a, a slave catcher to come in and say, you know, oh, that's the guy I'm looking for, or, you know, that's the lady I'm looking for, and they can just, you know forcibly um move us you know remove us to you know uh <laughs> into servitude in the south yeah then maybe uh you know emigration is not a bad idea because there's no way uh we're ever you know going to be uh safe <laughs> in this right. country and it's estimated that uh, as many as twenty thousand black americans fled the north into canada in mm. the 1850s for that very reason yeah, yeah. okay uh, let's see, move on a little bit, um, to the, the, the military side of the, or Lincoln as commander in chief and, uh, that whole process, of uh, dealing with, uh, uh, the colored, uh, colored troops and everything. But, uh, the first, um, chapter of that section is, uh, you know, about, um, uh, recruiting for the ranks. So it's either letters he's receiving from, uh, people, uh, from, uh, black citizens, uh, offering to, um, you know, uh, to go out and recruit, uh, black troops for the army or, uh, coming from people who, uh, uh, offering to, uh, enlist in the army and sometimes not even, uh, from, uh, from Americans. These are from, uh, uh, blacks that are, are living in Canada. Right. Uh, but it's nice to, um, uh, I, 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 I keep thinking that this is the sequel to uh, to address you as my fr- or excuse right. me to uh, you know a house built by slaves. Black- yeah, yeah. I keep I keep thinking this is the sequel, but uh, anyway, it's nice to see um, Alexander T. Augusta uh, appear mm-hmm. again in this book because uh, he's uh, featured prominently in the other book as you know he and another um, uh, black officer basically just like yeah we're gonna go to the White House and. Uh, you know, be received and, uh, you know, walk around and shake the president's hand and everything. And, yeah. <laughs> and so it's nice to see him appear again, um, in this book too, and give him a little more context to, uh, uh, to his life and how he got, you know, uh, into the army became, uh, one of the, if not the first, uh, one of the first, uh, black officers in the United States army. And, uh, you know, and the uh, highest ranking, highest ranking. Yes. Too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, tell a little about his, um, <clears throat> his letter and what his uh, problem was and why he actually had to write to write to Lincoln. Yeah. Black men begin writing to Lincoln as early as April of 1861 calling, you know, asking him, do you want black volunteers? If so, I'm willing to help do it. Mm-hmm. And for the first two years of the war, the Lincoln administration would not allow black men to serve in the army. And I mean, politically, it would have been suicidal if they had people in the North would have opposed it. And it it probably would have led to Kentucky and Maryland leaving the Union. But when Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation on January 1st, 1863, he explicitly allowed for black men to join the army. And within a week of the Emancipation Proclamation being issued, this guy, Alexander Augusta, writes to Lincoln offering his services. 
Now, Augusta had been born free in Norfolk, Virginia, about 30 minutes away from where I'm sitting right now. And in the, he was born in the 1820s, around 1825, and in the 1830s, his family moved to Baltimore, where he became a, a barber, which was a, a very common profession, middle-class profession for black men in that era. But he really wanted to be a doctor, and he tried to attend medical school at the University of Pennsylvania, but he was denied admission on account of his race. And so he ended up moving to Canada where in the 1850s, and he attended Trinity Medical College. And he got his MD, and then he practiced medicine for about six years there in, in Toronto, and he helped train other young black doctors. And as soon as the opportunity became available, again, it's within a week of the Emancipation Proclamation, he sends a letter to Lincoln, and he sends another one to Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, saying, I want to be of some use to my race. And he wants to come and practice medicine for the army as an army surgeon. And he has an incredible amount of hurdles and obstacles to overcome. The War Department tries to keep him from getting a commission as a surgeon. And Edwin Stanton says, no, he's he's going to be examined. And he passes with flying colors. At various points, he is beaten by mobs or kicked kicked off of streetcars in Washington, D.C. He has other soldiers who who are just so indignant that he actually outranks them that they write to politicians saying, you know, you've got to get rid of him. And so it, it's this really incredible story of this man who everywhere he turns, he faces these obstacles, but he doesn't he doesn't just sit back and take it. He fights back. And so from the beginning of his career with the army where he writes to Lincoln until a year later when he goes and meets with Lincoln. I mean, he is always asserting himself and he's essentially saying, I am a citizen. I am a soldier. I have rights that should be protected. And even though he had had to go to Canada, he comes back to the United States and spends the rest of his life in the U S he, he really has an incredible, even post-war career. He goes on to become the first black medical mm -hmm. school teacher in the United States, teaches at Howard University, and now he's buried at Arlington National Cemetery. So he, in his final resting place, he has that sort of honor that the high, one of the highest honors that a soldier can receive. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a interesting story. Uh, but speaking of interesting characters, <laughs> uh, you have um, some uh, letters in there from a man named... Uh, Paschal B. Randolph, who, yeah. uh, again, you call uh, one of the most interesting characters in 19th century America. And uh, so <laughs> who was this guy, Paschal Randolph? Yeah, Pat, and, and I should say one of the things I love about this book is that it's illustrated. So yeah. actually in both of the books, I've got pictures of Alexander Augusta and Paschal Randolph and others. Paschal Randolph was a real character. He was known as a sex magician. And if your reader, if your listeners want to know what that means, you're just going to have to pick up the books and find out. Um, he had been orphaned at a young age when he was about six or seven and was living in the Five Points neighborhood of, of Manhattan. So if your listeners have seen the movie Gangs of New York and can kind of picture the squalor of that slum area where you had all this high immigrant population, that's where Paschal Randolph was living. But he he grew up to become a fairly prominent black educator and spiritualist and public speaker and, again, sex magician. 
And he met with Lincoln at some point uh, to talk about recruiting. And then he also sent a letter to Lincoln to talk about recruiting. And ultimately, Lincoln did not think recruiting was the thing that Paschal Randolph should be doing. He, Lincoln thought that Randolph should be working in education for African-Americans. And so at Lincoln's invitation, I think is the word that Randolph later used, Paschal Randolph moved to New Orleans and helped found a school for black children that was called the Abraham Lincoln School. And so again, it it's this really fascinating story of these guys who feel a deep connection to Lincoln. And in fact, Paschal Randolph published a book in 1863 that he dedicated to Abraham Lincoln, again, showing the gratitude for Lincoln as a guy who is really concerned about the the concerns of the black community. Yeah, not only did he dedicate it, like he actually asked Lincoln if he uh, could uh, dedicate the book and and Lincoln gave him his blessing. Uh, That's right. When when he met with Lincoln, he asked him if he could do that. That's right. Yeah. Um, obviously, did Lincoln know he was a sex magician when <laughs> he? I don't know. That's a good. I, I mean, be surprised if he found out. I mean, I feel like uh, in Victorian era uh, America of the mid nineteenth century, I feel like being a sex magician. Um, I guess that was something that was just like a thing back then. There were just sex magicians, I guess. Um, yeah, he, but <laughs> Randolph has a book about it that is uh, available, I think, on archive.org. So listeners can go and download it if they're interested. <laughs> yeah, I was just, I, I just feel like, uh, I mean, I guess it's sort of taboo for them, but uh, I mean, but you know, he, he uh, ran in pretty rarefied circles, so. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially as a, he actually went on to meet Andrew Johnson after Lincoln's death as well. Um, yeah. So he was he was a very important but now almost completely forgotten man. And I do want to point out one other thing about Paschal Randolph. So in in the book A House Built by Slaves, I describe a scene where Randolph went to meet with an abolitionist mm. in the north. I think it was in New York City or Boston, and he this was a very prominent abolitionist. His it was actually the father of a man named Robert Gould Shaw, and Robert Gould Shaw is the colonel of the 54th mm-hmm. Massachusetts, which is uh, depicted by Ferris Bueller in the movie <laughs> Glory. <laughs> and um, so, you know, this guy, uh, Gould Shaw's father, was a very prominent abolitionist and was working to help recruit black soldiers. And one day, Paschal Randolph went to meet with him. And Shaw's father, Francis Shaw, just was very rude to him and and kicked him out of his office. I'm not ready to see you. Come back when I'm ready and so forth. And Randolph was convinced that Shaw's father was rude to him simply on account of the color of his skin. And so it's it's not, you know, we often assume, well, abolitionists were egalitarians and so forth. And and it's just not really the case. And so Mm. Randolph had been treated badly by white abolitionists. But he had a very different experience in his interactions with Abraham Lincoln. And, and Lincoln invariably, almost invariably treated African-Americans with dignity and respect. The one exception is that meeting we yeah. talked about earlier with colonization. Yeah, I mean, it's not that surprising about the abolitionists. I mean, it's a lot of uh, sort of uh, social crusaders, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, view people. Uh, have a, vos- a positive view of people in the abstract, uh, but then 
uh, in the concrete uh, when it comes to their interactions with specific people or one-on-one. You know, it's not quite as sane, the same as the lofty rhetoric. But um, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that about Lincoln because that was, you know, the one thing uh, about the um, about a house built by slaves that um, you know really brought home is that um, is sort of the sort of genuine. I don't know if surprise is the word, but um, how um, moved all these people who met Lincoln were by how um, uh, the dignity with which she treated him, like you know, that he you know he looked me in the eyes and. And, you know, he shook my hand and, um, you know, uh, just just something that small, you know, right. uh, meant so much uh, to these people. It's a it's a pretty remarkable um, statement about Lincoln and just, uh, um, you know, just how it, and how he treated people. Right. And they all wrote about it. Everyone yeah, yeah. who met Lincoln wrote about how he took them by the hand, shook their hand. Frederick Douglass described Lincoln is taking him by the hand and leading him through Lincoln's office until they were seated. I mean, can you imagine that? And and so some critics of Lincoln today say, oh, well, you know, can we really trust these accounts? And it's like, well, so many people wrote this. So many people had this experience that I think it's absolute. It, it was an absolute genuineness on Lincoln's part to be concerned about the the well-being of his guests and correspondence yeah i mean it would just i mean you could say you know the the cynical would be like well that's just you know politics or you know him being a politician or whatever but i mean the, the stories like these go back you know well before i mean obviously the uh the billy the barber story about how <laughs> they met you know when lincoln was just a very young man living in um was it new, new salem. salem it was in new salem at the time right it wasn't even springfield and, uh, you know, they're just walking down the road chatting and Lincoln's like, hey, you know, why don't you come? Uh, you're on your way to Springfield. Why don't you just, you know, stay the night at my place, you know, have dinner. Well, but it doesn't seem to me that like if Lincoln were just acting in a political manner, he would have been, you know, unless he's a sociopath, uh, right. then, you know, he would have been doing the same thing, you know, 30 years before, uh, you know, he was even in the White House, probably before he even uh, decided he wanted a career in uh, politics. You know? Well, and the politics of it is, it does not help a white politician. Sure, yeah, exactly. Sixty-one yeah, to that's be the other kind thing. to black people like yeah. that, and Democrat. So the newspapers in that era were partisan. If you lived in a city, you could buy a Republican newspaper or a Democrat newspaper, and you would buy the newspaper of your political affiliation. And the Democratic newspapers of the North, they are just outraged at the fact that Lincoln is welcoming black guests to the White House and listening to their requests or answering their requests that they're mailing him. I mean, they they just think it's scandalous. So, yeah, Lincoln and that, I think, speaks to the genuine nature of what Lincoln was doing in these moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, oh, man, we've already got 45 minutes. Wow. <laughs> All right. Uh, moving on a little bit. Um, you know, there's all these, like you said, different uh, chapters in the book. We're not going to be able to get to all this stuff, but um, um, you know, there uh, one specific chapter on uh, navigating uh, how blacks had to navigate uh, military justice in the military court system. But uh, for the most part, you write that uh, um, when it comes to these courts, you know, black soldiers enjoyed. 
pretty high standards of fairness and due process in uh, general courts martial during the war. Uh, uh, I don't know if that's just like a, um, uh, just like a, if that's because uh, the military instills a, a sense of duty, um, <clears throat> you know, into officers and uh, enlisted men, and so um, they just wanted to make sure they get it right. Uh, but yeah, you said for the most part, uh, for the most part, black soldiers were treated fairly well when they had to, um, come up, uh, in, uh, for court martial for whatever, uh, for whatever charge they were facing. Right. Well, a big part of that is that there were certain procedural Mm -hmm. rights that defendants would have in a military court. So if you are if you are convicted in a military court and you're sentenced to be executed, you can't be executed under federal law without presidential approval. And so you can appeal to Lincoln for pardon or for a commutation of your sentence at the very least. And then there were also certain rights that were guaranteed to any defendant in a military tribunal, whether a white person or a black person or a man or a woman, because Mm -hmm. There were at least 120 women who were actually tried in military courts during the Civil War. They were all white civilians, um, but they were tried in courts and they would have certain procedural rights guaranteed to them. But then the other thing that really comes out of these military trials, I did a book a couple of years ago on the landmark Supreme Court case, Ex Parte Milligan. And it's a it's a collection of essays about this really important case from the Civil War era. And I wrote an essay on the use of military courts to try civilians. And one of the most interesting things to come out of the military trials of the Civil War era was that African-Americans were now allowed to testify. The way it had worked before the Civil War was that the federal courts would basically follow whatever the local rules were. And so throughout the South and throughout much of the North, Black people were not allowed to testify against white people in court. But as the military moves forward and has trials, they decide to ignore that policy. And they say, we're going to allow black men and women to testify. And so hundreds of black men and women testify during the Civil War in military courts. Hmm. Sometimes when they are the defendant and they are you know, giving a statement in their defense and sometimes when they are, are witnesses to the, to the alleged crime. And so uh, the military trials of the Civil War era really do a lot to expand rights for African Americans in a way that they had never existed before. Yeah, and also uh, just want to mention, uh, to be fair, not every letter uh, Lincoln receives is from someone who... <laughs> is uh on the level uh you know there's a a few letters in here where um you know they're uh sort of trying to pull the fast one on lincoln and uh and even in a lot of the 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 letters where (laughs) um uh especially in in this section with uh the justice system where the evidence (laughs) you know they're they're appealing for uh, pardons or commutations of their sentences or, or whatnot. And uh, for the most part, it seems like, yeah, they probably actually <laughs> did do what they did. Uh, but, but, um, but never underestimate, uh, the power of persistence. And, uh, I don't know if you can talk about, uh, James Castle, the, uh, uh, the soldier in the black soldier in Louisiana who, um, is, uh, charged with, uh, attempted murder, 
after he sort of gets drunk and uh, takes a shot at uh, one of his fellow soldiers. And uh, he's found guilty, and uh, <laughs> and uh, but he just keeps writing and writing and writing, uh, not only to Lincoln, I think, but also to Andrew Johnson. And finally uh, gets his, uh, I believe he gets his sentence commuted, um, the remainder of his sentence commuted. And so uh, for his uh, attempted murder charge, I think he was supposed to serve, I can't remember how many. Uh, I think it was 10 years. 10 years, and he only ended up doing about three, I think, maybe. Yeah, he got yeah. out February of 66. Yeah. Johnson was known for, of course, pardoning lots of people um, after the Civil War, most of them ex-Confederates. But he also mm-hmm. did let a lot of military prisoners out of jail as well. And so, yeah, James Castle is one of them. And it, it, it really is an interesting thing to see the way – in the case of the James Castle letter, I I was able to quote a fair bit from the trial. Mm-hmm. One of the remarkable things about these military commission trials and, and courts martial cases is that they kept a verbatim record – of exactly what was said at the trial, question, answer, question, answer. And so you, uh, that's another way that you get voices that are often lost, white and black voices mm-hmm. in, in these cases. And um, and so, yeah, I mean, Castle is one of these guys, he's found guilty. He had, I pulled it up here, he had shouted, by God, um, let me see. Like when, he shows up like drunk at like the same, the same guys, their tent, like two nights in a row. And right. like the second night, they're like, no, like, just just leave. Please go away. <laughs> like, we don't want to, you know, and he's basically just like, I'll go wherever I please. Yeah, you know? he says, and, I don't care a damn. <laughs> I come when I please. And he yeah, says, yeah. by God, you would put two balls through me. He wheeled around and pulled his pistol out of his pocket and shot at me. Like, <laughs> you get these vivid images. And so these guys, you know, in his case, he wrote to Lincoln and said, well, I was sick and someone told me to. <laughs> eat red pepper and drink whiskey and that that would help <laughs> yeah oh no he went looking for like some sort of like bark or like and he couldn't find it right uh, the bark was supposed to help but then it was like oh he couldn't find it then someone told him about the pepper and whiskey which you know um seems ridiculous but you know, <laughs> but... You know they, they had all sort of folk remedies no <laughs> oh, yeah 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 believe yeah. in and yeah um, it was well. I was going to make an essential oils joke, but I shouldn't because I know some members of my family take that very seriously, and some I'm sure listeners do too. But you know, people look for folk remedies. Yeah, yeah. Still do today. Well, I mean, and if you're sick, you, like if you have like some sort of like chronic sickness or illness or something, and someone's just like, "Oh, I'll try this," right? You're, you're going to try it. <laughs> I mean, just because no matter. Uh, because you just want some relief in some way. So, you know, if it's, yeah, if it's, I listened to an interview that Ross Duthit did recently and he talked about, you know, traditional medicine did not help with Lyme's disease. And so he tried everything he could, everything experimental and natural and so forth. And eventually he found things that worked. And mm. so, yeah, so that's what this guy's doing. But what he does gets him drunk and then he winds up <laughs> shooting at people. Um, you know, my favorite one of the, there are a handful of people in here who were deceptive to Lincoln, and mm-hmm. I was able to figure it out in a number of cases. But my favorite one was a, a young soldier from outside of Philadelphia who was enlisted in the army and wanted to get out. And so he sent a letter to his dad. <laughs> right, right. And he sends a letter to his dad and says, Here, I'm enclosing a letter to Lincoln that's 
made to appear like it's from you, send it to Lincoln. Basically, I guess he wanted to have it postmarked from Pennsylvania instead of South Carolina <laughs> where he was stationed. And his dad didn't understand what the son was asking. So the dad just includes both. He includes the letter <laughs> saying, here, let's trick Lincoln with this other letter. And the dad sends both. And they both wind up now in, with Lincoln's papers. And uh, that guy did not – he wanted to be discharged from the army. And once Lincoln or his secretary saw the ruse and saw how they were trying to deceive him, I mean they didn't give him the discharge. But you never you never knew when people yeah. – Lying in their letters to Lincoln. Uh, that's another thing too. Like most of these people that write Lincoln for uh, satisfaction when it came to whatever uh, issue uh, they were writing about, for the most part, they usually did not um, receive any sort of uh, presidential help for just whatever reason, right? Uh, because Lincoln didn't see it, or because the you know who Hay or Nicolay uh, or whoever else decided that you know this didn't warrant uh, any sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, what's the word, intervention on their part uh, or anything like that. So, I mean, that's kind of a bummer. <laughs> like when you, right. when you read the book, when it's like, yeah, then like, you know, all these soldiers asking for discharge for like medical reasons or whatever. And I was like, oh, so-and-so, nothing happened. And then they finally got discharged in, you know, December right. 1865 in Texas or wherever or something like that, you know. And I'll, I'll say there are a couple scholars who have really criticized Lincoln and said, well, he didn't really care about black people because he didn't answer letters when they wrote to him. And my response is that Lincoln couldn't intervene in most cases that came before him. Yeah. I mean, people, if you're getting 200, 300 letters a day and most of them are asking for favors, mm -hmm. you just – you, you just can't do any something for everybody. And so most people, I think, went away disappointed. It's like that uh, – remember that movie – what is it? Uh, Bruce Almighty? Bruce Almighty. Yeah. I was just thinking <laughs> of that. But I didn't when know. he's God and, like, he's got the – he's got to answer all the prayers – or he's got, you know, like the email box and it's just like full of prayers and he just decides right. to like grant everybody whatever yes, they yeah. wanted. And then it's just like societal chaos, right. you know. Um, yeah, too. But at the same time, uh, I was going to say, um, you know, you kind of lose track of it because it's a book about, you know, um, letters to Lincoln from, from black people. But, you know, he's receiving the same sorts of letters in probably much higher volume from uh, white people, you know, the same thing asking for discharges or uh, for back pay or whatever, or pardon or clemency or whatnot. And he's probably not, you know, not seeing or not acting on sort of the same percentage of numbers of those letters as he is with uh, black Americans. I think that's right. I think that's right. The ones that Lincoln deals with the most are the pardon requests. So, mm -hmm. I have a chapter of civilian pardon requests at the beginning of the book and then the chapter of military pardon requests in the middle. And those were the ones where very clearly the president has a constitutional obligation to grant pardons. And so if the attorney general thinks that the person should be pardoned for civilian pardons or if the judge advocate general on the military side thinks that a, a convict convicted soldiers should be pardoned, then Lincoln's going to act on that. Mm -hmm. um, but in most other cases, when Lincoln's getting letters about other aspects of life, he just, he can't act on most things. Right. All right. Well, so already in an hour, so uh, yeah. as long as I said I keep you. So, uh, 
guess uh, you know wrapping up uh, same question I asked you uh, last time you came on same question I asked everybody that comes on the podcast when, uh, uh, when we're getting to the end and um, you know what's uh, what would you like the audience to uh, get out of this book and you know what's the you know what's the one thing you'd really want them to take away from reading it well if I if I can if you'll indulge me I'll yeah, do two. go ahead um, the one is I think that this gives us as I said before voices that have been lost. And I think it tells us a lot about how black people loved Abraham Lincoln. They saw him as someone who cared about them and they had a great appreciation for what he was doing during the civil war. And then I think the other part of it is that it tells us a bit about Abraham Lincoln. I mean, these letters tell us more about the black correspondents, but I think they also give us an insight into the many pressures that Lincoln was facing as a wartime president and that he was juggling an immense amount of balls that I just can't even fathom. I mean, you you know, not only is he dealing with all the egos of all the generals and all the political issues of just Northern politics and of the war and trying to end the war and figure out what to do about slavery. He's got all these things going on. And at the same time, Hundreds of people throughout the war, white and black, are writing to him asking for things like pardon or asking for things like, can I have this office? I mean, in some of the letters, one or two of these letters, black people write to Lincoln seeking political office or political appointments. Um, And so Lincoln is juggling just an immense amount of things. I don't know how he was able to wrap his mind around it. And the reality is he just didn't get a lot of sleep at the beginning you mentioned yeah. my other books. I did a book called Midnight in America. Uh, it's a history of dreams during the Civil War, and I have a chapter on Lincoln's dreams. And in it, I, in parts of the book, I write about how little sleep Abraham Lincoln had. And while others were asleep at night, he was awake thinking and trying to take care of things. And so I think you get a little sense of that from the diversity of correspondence that he received. Yeah, and it's just, uh, you know, everything he had to juggle, but also the fact that, you know, really – um, up until, you know, the, the sort of dual victories in Vicksburg and Gettysburg, the war's not really going so great <laughs> for the Union. So I mean, it's not like, you know, you can see like, you know, in in 1862 that you can see, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel or anything like right. that. You know what I mean? It's like it's very bleak. Or I mean, and even, you know, as late as... Um, uh, 1864, uh, you know, the summer of 1864... Uh, you know, when uh, Sherman is struggling to make his way into Atlanta and uh, Grant and the Army of the Potomac have just gone through the Overland campaign with uh, Lee and there's, you know, uh, I think like 60,000 casualties and mm-hmm. about, you know, pretty just like the bloodiest period of the war pretty much. In about uh, a four-week period. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, you know, because before, you know, it was like, all right, the armies would, you know, get together and scrap for a couple days. And then sort of like, you know, go off into their own corners and lick their wounds for a little bit and then maybe like come back like a month or two later, you know, and fight again or something like that. But like the uh, the Overland campaign is just a continuous like day after day after day uh, bloodbath, you know, uh, across uh, northern Virginia. And so, um, you know, there's all these casualties and then they're no closer to they're really, you know, no closer to defeating Lee or taking Richmond. And, you know, they're stuck in the siege in, in Petersburg. Uh, you know, it just looks very bleak. He doesn't think he's going to get reelected. I mean, so just having 
all that to deal with when, you know, everything is just not going well. <laughs> the most part yeah. has to make it even worse. And I mean, it, I mean, it's pretty obvious how, I mean, you can just see the pictures of Lincoln, you know, the photographs that are taking that oh, yeah. like before or right when he takes office. And then, you know, in 1864 and 1865, and he's just like, I mean, you can just tell how worn and how, uh, how much the, of a toll all that stress has taken on him, you know, just by how haggard he looks by 1865 and how much he's aged, you know, in those four years. Yeah. It's really remarkable. All right. So yeah, before we go, uh, anything, Oh, why don't you uh, tell everybody about the, um, about the Lincoln forum and, uh, what's going on there and, you know, what you guys do and all that stuff. And so people can maybe check it out for themselves and look into it. Yeah, so every year we have a symposium in Gettysburg, and it's always November 16th to the 18th, which is the lead-up to the big commemoration of the Gettysburg Address on November 19th. And this year, the 19th, will be on a Saturday, so there will be big parades and a speaker at the National Cemetery that people can go to. And we've got a lot of really great speakers lined up. John Meacham will be there, and he will be talking about a new biography of Lincoln that he's publishing. John Avalon, who's a CNN correspondent, will be there. Walter Starr, who has published biographies of three of Lincoln's cabinet members, Seward, Stanton, and Chase. He'll be there to talk about his new biography of Chase. Elizabeth Leonard will talk about her biography of Ben Butler. I will talk about my books on African Americans and Lincoln. And we'll have a lot of other speakers and panels and so forth. And if people are interested in learning more about it, they can go to thelincolnforum.org and uh, you can join there. You can, If you join, you get copies of our bulletin twice a year and then you can come to the symposium in November. You can register on the website. It's a, it's a really wonderful experience where between two and 300 people come together and just have a great time hanging out and talking about Lincoln. And it, it, it has an almost family feel to it where people come year after year and get to know each other. And it's, it's a really great experience. And for people who come for the first time, if you've never been to Gettysburg, Mm. we, we have, we have gotten Carol Reardon, who is a legendary professor and tour guide to give a tour of the Gettysburg battlefield for people who are coming for the first time. And she wrote a wonderful book about 20 some years ago called Pickett's Charge in History and Memory. So that'll be a real highlight for people as well. Yeah. The other thing too, uh, Gettysburg's just really pretty <laughs> like the area around it. It, uh, um, I've always, I just always really loved that, uh, area of, uh, Pennsylvania, really central Pennsylvania's, yeah. So, yeah. It's just a very, uh, you know, the rolling farmlands and, and the hills and the mountains and everything. It's just a, a very, uh, very, uh, pretty battlefield. I don't know if there's a, maybe outside of, uh, Chattanooga, say, I don't think there's probably a, a prettier, uh, Civil War, uh, battlefield site than Gettysburg. Yeah. I think, I, I would put Antietam up there too. Yeah. Antietam's uh, very, yeah, yeah. Because Antietam's not as quite as commercialized, but there's really something about walking on the battlefield and some of the places that are kind of off the beaten path and just kind of being contemplative and thinking about the sacrifices that happen there. It's I love I go to Gettysburg once or twice a year, sometimes three times a year, and I it's just a place that I love. Yeah, and the downtown's very uh, very quaint, quaint and nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's just very it's a it's just a very lovely area. And then there's the college there too, Gettysburg College. 
Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so if you've never been to uh, Gettysburg, if you need an excuse to go, um, then you know join the Lincoln Forum and head up there. In I mean, it's prettier in the summer, in spring and summer, obviously. Uh, yeah. Because you know, because winter is just not pretty <laughs> of a season. Uh, unless there's snow on the ground, but uh, but still uh, head up in or actually that would be fall in November. But um, anyway, on occasion but, it does snow in in late November, but hopefully yeah, this yeah, year. Yeah, right. So uh, yeah, so if you need if you've never been to Gettysburg, never been to the battlefield, uh, if you need an excuse to uh, head up there, then like I said, join the Lincoln Forum and uh, you know head up for the uh, for the summit there. Um, yeah, it sounds like lots of fun. All right, so. Uh, yeah, again, the book, uh, to address you as my friend, African Americans Letters to Abraham Lincoln, um, very, uh, uh, it's just a, a, a very interesting and, um, thought-provoking, um, read, uh, to, again, just to hear these people sort of in their own voices, um, you know, because a lot of these letters is, uh, Dr. White talked about earlier, um, you know, not a high level of literacy uh, among slaves and, and, and even among those who were sort of literate or semi-literate, um, you know, uh, they don't really know, uh, you know, correct English grammar or punctuation or, or spelling or anything like that. So a lot of these letters are, um, uh, the words are sort of sounded out phonetically. Um, so you can really get a sense of the, the person's actual uh voice their speaking voice uh their everyday speaking voice in these letters and then um yeah so it's uh it's just really interesting and uh highly recommended uh also i think uh i think you wrote in the book too that it was um that the book was meant for a general reader but it uh, particularly aimed at students and young people Mm -hmm. um so if you're out there you have a uh a child a grandchild someone of you know high school age or college age um you know, and they're studying the Civil War or something like that. And, and if you want to get them something uh, interesting, that would be a uh, sort of uh, appendix to uh, whatever their uh, their um, assigned reading is. This is uh, definitely a book to get for them. So uh, highly, highly recommended to everybody out there. And uh, again, my thanks for coming back on to uh, Dr. White. Thanks for sitting through this <laughs> second yeah, time. Thanks for having a me. second time in a few months. Uh, I appreciate it, and uh, glad to have you back. And hope to have you back for the next one, whenever that will uh, that may be. Hopefully next year. All right, cool. All right, again, and if you like this podcast, please leave us a five star review and share with your friends. And if you have books you'd like to discuss with us on this podcast, you can reach me at uh, tbenson@heartland.org. That's a T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And you can also reach out to us at our uh, little Twitter account for the uh, podcast. And our Twitter handle is at illbooks at I-L-L books. So feel free to go there and give us a follow or, you know, send us a DM or a regular message if you have any questions or uh, comments about the podcast, anything like that. And, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. So, uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, we'll see you guys next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, Mom. Bye-bye.
Somebody 